Well, it's been kind of a, a weird week for me. I don't know if it's been that way for you. I went to uh, uh, New York to go see my daughter who uh, lives in Corning, New York, and uh, has an apartment that's an upstairs apartment with two cats. And uh, uh, basically, uh, that's, that's what she manages right now. Uh, and, 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 and with two cats that create a lot of chaos. She inherited them from my mother-in-law who passed away last summer. And uh, the cats have been sort of hit and miss. And one of the issues that she ran into was that they decided to miss the kitty litter box in her pantry and, and use the floor. And she said, Dad... It's really bad. Can you come out and rescue my floor? So I came out and uh, we worked on uh, putting some new flooring in a 4x4 four four area where the cat litter was. It wasn't glamorous by any stretch. And right about now, you're probably thinking too much information. Well, it truly is. Uh, and as I'm just putting all this stuff in a great big gar- garbage bag, I'm thinking, where am I going to get rid of all of this nasty flooring and carpet and all that stuff? And, and Mayim said, uh, well, we have a big dumpster at work but I don't know if the boss will let me dump it in there or not. And I said, well, how big is it? And she says, it's, 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 I think it's big enough, but I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned about whether or not I would have his approval. Now, I met her boss, and I, I know he, he would probably be cool with it. Uh, but nonetheless, in the evening, we took this bag of... Um, carpet and all of the stuff that is the remainder of the project and uh, to her work and I, I was hoping that no one would be there and they would see me throw it into the dumpster. Well we arrived there and there is a car there and I'm thinking well you know what uh, it's, it's not a it's, it, it's probably not going to be a big deal if anybody sees me but if they do I'll just explain to them uh, we're trying to take out some excess stuff that they won't pick up at her curb and when I, when I get there I discover that there is a dumpster and it's about half the size of the pews over here and about 10 feet tall and I have this big bag and I'm thinking I don't know if I'm honestly strong enough to heave that bag up over that thing so I I heaved it up and it didn't go in and it landed on the thing and I heaved it up again and it finally made it and I threw a couple of other things up in there and and wouldn't you know it uh, my daughter's manager came out right about then and I'm thinking I wonder what his response is going to be and he's like I, I said, I hope you don't mind if I threw some articles in the in the dumpster. And he said, I don't worry about it. You've seen how big that dumpster is. It's not a problem. And uh, Mayim happened to be there, and she was just observing all this, thinking, I hope my dad doesn't get me fired. And then afterwards, uh, we spent a little bit of time just chatting with her manager. And then on the departure of uh, uh, going back to her, her apartment, she was uh, telling me about her manager that he actually hadn't been a Christian long at all. But he had that spirit about him that said that Jesus was really alive in him. She said, no, he used to be kind of angry and frustrated a lot. And I said, really, how, how long has he been a believer? And she said, about, about three months. And uh, prior to that, uh, he had just worked as an engineer with, alongside a whole bunch of other engineers in her place. But the thing that I, I really wanted to, 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 to bring out from that whole story is the fact that the, the owner, who I've, I've talked to on a, on a few occasions, is a Christian. He's very committed to making sure that Christ is part of the workplace. And I spoke to him enough to know that he was sincere about it. 
So much so that he actually hired many people from Messiah College, where my daughter's from, because his goal was to create a culture that had a, a very Christian uh, characteristic to it. But then he said, the next thing I want to do is I want to start hiring people who are not Christians to come into this culture and begin to see what life is like when people have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And this gentleman, Mayim's manager, was one of those individuals that came into that workplace, discovered very quickly it was a different kind of environment, and then over time was honestly impressed by the consistency that he saw with the lives of the people that were there, how they got along, how when a project would go out, they would gather together and they would, they would actually pray for it, not from the prompting of the, of, the, of the owner of the company, but just from the prompting of something inside of them. And I, I said, Mayim, what a wonderful opportunity to work in a place that has such a, a culture like that. I said, I, I know that's got to be a rarity. And the effect of that culture on an individual is a thing that, that, that honestly uh, impressed me profoundly on my trip over there. And I thought, what role does the culture play in our church? What kind of people do we have as far as whether or not we're consistent with the things that we believe and whether or not it makes any difference at all in how we carry on with other people. And the book of James, as he writes, he writes on a very practical level for churches like ours to look at themselves and say, are we doing what we need to be doing to help the people that God wants us to help? Or are we just behaving like everybody else around us? And as we look at James chapter 2, it opens up with some, actually some pretty strong uh, polarized language about people in the church not doing what they should be doing. But he gets to a place where he says, but here's some examples of some people who are doing what they should be doing. And as I thought about what James said, I thought about our church and things that have been happening in our church lately and how the culture of our people um, has impacted how we've responded to the needs of the community. With that said, let's go ahead and take a look at James chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few verses real quickly and then we're going to just go into the message time. It says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in also, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And as James is writing this, he's taking into consideration who the people should be as they've inherited the good news, as they began to walk in the new life of Christ, and as they began to think about all the stories in, the, in, in, in what was their Bible at the time. The only Bible that they had wasn't the New Testament like we have, but rather, because none of that was really developed and, and written yet, uh, all they had was the Old Testament and the stories from the Old Testament. But there was enough in those stories for them to understand what it means to live like the people of God should live. And I wonder about us individually. If we came into a place like this for the first time, 
Would we say, yeah, they were nice people. Yeah, they were hospitable people. Yeah, they were caring people. Or would they say they were cold and they were indifferent and and really uninterested? And if you just take it even a little bit further and you think about people coming into the community. I remember about seven years ago getting word that we had a a Hispanic uh, population beginning to grow within the Salem community and how many of them were Guatemalan people coming up here with kind of sketchy um, uh, identity papers and, and, and in some cases uh, just simply not, not legal. And I thought, I wonder what the reception would be from the people of Salem regarding their presence here. Would they show partiality to their own or would they be accepting? And at the time it really wasn't very clear. But in seven, eight years I've discussed that the response really is an indication of the kind of culture that has been cultivated in our church towards outsiders and especially people who are different and in the larger community. And I can honestly say I'm very proud to, to, to confess that when I look at the cross-section of people. We all have different views on immigration. We all have uh, different ideas about uh, the, the presence of, 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 of non-documented people. But I think the underlying theme that defined the response most effectively was I, I believe everybody said first, these are human beings and they are worthy of God's love. They're in a time of need And what is it that we can do? And what I like about that response, which I saw a few weeks ago on a Tuesday evening, was what it indicated to me. That there are a lot of people who attend First Christian who say our culture is to be accepting of people that are different than us. And, and I get feedback from people that say when I gather for worship or whenever I've come here for the first few times, people were friendly. And I find that to be very positive. But when you take that a step further and you say it's one thing to offer kind gestures whenever it's just just trying to be congenial in an environment like this, that's not a bad thing. But when a person is really going through a difficult time and has a lot of need and, and we respond to that sacrificially, that's a completely different thing. That's a whole nother level of showing a lack of favoritism and a cultural response of what it means to be a follower follower of Jesus. Now when James was writing this, there were people who went to church who said, yeah, we've heard the gospel, we've kind of heard it for a while now, and, and honestly, um, it's not as fresh anymore as it was when we first heard it. And they began to fall back into old habits. You know, somebody would show up at church And they would maybe not have everything in order appearance-wise that that we think a person maybe should have by our standard. Maybe they had excessive amounts of tattoos or or jewelry. Or maybe they just had an air about them that was off-putting. Or maybe there were things about them that we prejudged them by. And yet, um, the response in the churches that James is talking about says... Yeah, those people, when they come, we just have them sit over here. However, what if somebody came in and they were dressed very appealingly, they had lots of charm, lots of charisma, and they had this ability to be very engaging. 
And in, 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 in this case, as James describes, they also were wealthy. All of a sudden, everybody's posture towards that individual is completely defined by what they look like and what they can offer. Now, when James is writing this, he's pretty frustrated because as he's looking at the church, he's saying they're not really being the culture that they're supposed to be. They're not being the type of people that see all people as made in God's image and God's likeness. When James was writing this, he was basically saying the same thing that even Robert E. Lee said after the Civil War. So I'm thinking about the 4th of July. He said... Despite the fact that we are fighting this, 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 this war, at the foot of the cross, we are all equals. That is, we are all undeserving of God's grace. We are all undeserving of God's love. At the foot of the cross, all of us stand humbled and humiliated. But there's a lot of us who are in this room because in our humbled and humiliated state, the foot of the cross spoke to us in such a way that it said you're worthy you're loved you are you are a candidate for adoption into my family and the only thing that's keeping that from happening is is your willingness and as God is looking at us through the eyes of a bloodstained cross he sees us with profound love and acceptance and as James is looking at this church, he's saying, I know God sees people all the same, all in need, all perhaps candidates for forgiveness and healing from their brokenness. But it seems like the church is not embodying that value, that culture. They're saying one thing and carrying on completely different. And I think it's, it's a concern that he had that we, in every situation, embody those qualities. Whether we're dealing with our next door neighbor, or whether we're dealing with somebody in church we have a disagreement with, or whether we're dealing with a people group that is way beyond our, our own culture. Every time that people encounter us, we should be the same here as we are here as we are there. You know, in the, in the Pacific Northwest, um, they have these things called totem poles. I don't know if you've ever seen one or not, but they, they, look, they look like that. And there's a whole set of variations on that. Many of them have wings and, and, and stuff of that kind. Now, I'm not here to promote a, a, a different kind of religion. Other than I just want to point out something about the significance of that pole within a community. Do, do you know why? People, Indian tribes in the Pacific Northwest find it important to create a totem pole that stands on the edge of their community pointing towards the places where people live and where water is and has uh, depicted on it uh, uh, a lot of variations of animal kinds and colors. Do you know why that's so important for these people? Because their whole identity is centered on what the symbols that are represented on that totem pole uh, say to the people within the community. 
When they look up there and they, and they see different animals, for example, you've heard of the concept of the spirit animal. People talk about that. Well, it's sort of derived from that. I just want to show like a little bit of a list of, of how that plays out. On a, on a totem pole sometimes, I know you probably can't read that, but there's a hummingbird that's a symbol of beauty and intelligence, and it's known as the messenger of the spirits. There is a dogfish. The dogfish was stranded in a shallow, here's a story, she was stranded in a shallow pool of water and left for dead when a man came along and rescued him to return the dogfish, um, uh, 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 to, to, to return the dogfish sang to him for saving, uh, saving his life. It's a symbol of persistence and strength. And, and, and the salmon, which is also a staple uh, up in the Pacific Northwest. And you would see some of these things depicted on there. And, and the, whole, the whole point is they looked at virtues that the animal represented. And they would say, okay, the fox is cunning. Or the bear is strong. Or, you know, the, 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 the raccoon maybe has guile and persistence. Or maybe they'll look at an eagle and they'll say, uh, an eagle is uh, majestic. And whatever it is that, the, the, that was depicted as the animal on the totem pole, every time the people in the community would walk by it, they would say, oh, that's the salmon. And that means this. Oh, that's the dogfish. That reminds me of a story. Oh, that, that's the hummingbird. That reminds me of beauty and grace and intelligence. And these were all qualities that people with, within that culture would say, these are things that are important to us. These are things that when people see us, we're identified by what they represent. It could be courage. It could be patience. It could be a number of virtues. And as the totem pole says those stories about events that have happened, like a person getting, or a person saving the dogfish, and then the, the narrative about how that played out, it was sacred for them to take these stories and repeat them generation to generation to generation. And then it was important for them to say, when people come into our community, they'll know us by these qualities. Maybe courage, strength, persistence, um, maybe cunning, maybe shrewdness. You pick, you pick uh, your, your different Indian tribe and their different totem poles, and they'll tell you, this is what defines us. This is what we're known by. Why am I going through all of this? Because when the church disconnects from the story of who we are, we begin to behave like everyone around us. And for people in the church that James is talking to, they didn't find it hard to put down people that were beneath them socially or intellectually or whatever. And they found it perhaps to their advantage to curry the favor of people that were attractive or wealthy or resourced in some way that could do them some, some good from the standpoint of the church and from society out there. But that essentially is what we were called to be saved from, wasn't it? from being competitive with other people, from looking at other people as a means to an end, from thinking about relationships as only something that we have when it benefits us first. When Jesus died for us, it changed those rules completely around, and it redefined who we were as a people. 
And every once in a while, we have to step back and we have to say, are we those people? Are we following the stories that we've read from the Bible? Are we taking the attitudes that we're supposed to have towards other people and bringing them into play? Well, I honestly felt like a few weeks ago, we were tested. We were tested as a church culture to see whether or not we had the willingness to take in people that were complete strangers, language different, ways of life different, and provide everything that they need in a moment of crisis. And I thought, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a test because immigration is such a hot button. And it could very well become, um, take precedent over the desire to serve humanity. But what I saw happen was very gratifying. Normally when you preach a sermon on, on a passage like this, you have to sort of, you have to sort of uh, you know, say, step it up, step it up. But I was, I, was, I was impressed that the culture within this church was, was really grounded enough in the lives of enough people that the question wasn't, are we willing to help? But rather, how can God use me in this time with where I am gifted and capable to help them in their time of need? A completely different question and a better question. And yet, I also think about just apart from a crisis event like that, how do we do that from day to day? Do we look at people around us and we use the same ways that people outside of here use to classify and categorize other people? Or do we see other people as made in God's image and likeness? Do we think of other people as maybe broken, perhaps going through grief, maybe just putting on a good front? And do we, more importantly, ask God, as we talked about last week, for wisdom that we can know what we need to say if God has something to say through us to them. And James was kind of disappointed that the people in the church were not tuning into God enough. And they were just backsliding in their, in their, in their perspective of things. Well, there are two characters that he brings up. And everything that he directs them towards is the storyline of their lives. And I'm just going to show you uh, another part of this. Uh, but, uh, but, and as I do, I want you to think about what James 14 uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 26 says, relative to our lives. And here's what James writes. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, well, without giving them anything needed for the body, what good is that? Well, James goes on to say, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled saying, Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by their, another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now there are two characters in that, in that passage that you may or may not have heard of. One of them is a fellow by the name of Abraham, which I am almost confident that everyone has heard of Father Abraham. And... And even if you have, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that you know all of the stories about his life. But if you're part of this tribe very long, you find that the stories of Abraham have a very defining effect on who we are. He's sort of the guy apart from Jesus that is lifted up as one who believed God, who had faith in God, who trusted God. But he also is somebody that didn't trust God sometimes, who misstepped and who failed. But in the end, God said, you persisted, you kept going in the right direction. And I'm going to credit that to you as righteousness. He didn't expect perfection, but he expected him to stay faithful to the process. Because over time, what happened was the process began to change him. He went from a person who kind of trusted God. He would have his moments where, God, I just trust you. I know that you're there. I know that you're working. To moments where many of us are probably the same way. God, I wonder, are you here? Are you working? You don't seem to be very close. And then we just start kind of making our own decisions without him and getting ourselves into a lot of trouble, which Abraham did. But eventually in time, he got kind of settled in his faith and he saw that God was faithful no matter what. He didn't always show up whenever he wanted him to show up, but invariably God showed up when he needed to show up, when he was supposed to show up. And Abraham saw that pattern and he just trusted God. And the scripture in a few places Quotes, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why does the scripture do that? Because it wants us to look at the story of his life and say, there's a story that will maybe give you hope. There's a story that will encourage you. There's a story about a guy who went from nothing to greatness because he honored God with his life. And his whole life began to be defined by God. If you could take each of our lives... And, 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 and on an individual level, say, we each reflect a type of culture. You know, there are certain values and qualities that we have that when people around us, they see it. Once they get to know us, they see whether or not, you know, we have good character or whether we have sketchy character. When, when people begin to interact with us, they say, you know, that person made me feel better about myself after I left them than whenever we started the conversation. Have you ever been around people like that? And then there are other people where you're like, man, I, I just wanted to run as far away from, my, uh, from that person as I possibly could uh, because I, I began to see how toxic they were. And that's our response, isn't it? It's sort of like the individual culture that we carry around. And what James was trying to get through to the church and to the people specifically was that there are things that need to define your life. And those things have everything to do with the purposes of God. And when a church is faced with a test, like how do you respond to the Hispanic community? God is sort of taking notes and he's saying, 
Where are they with their culture? Is the gap between the culture of the church and the culture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is the gap just too wide? Like you can't even tell that they're followers of Jesus? Or is it, is it, is it pretty, pretty close, pretty on target? Now I can't speak for each of us individually. All I can say is the fruit of what happened was encouraging. And it wasn't encouraging just on the church level. It was encouraging within the community. And as I'm just preaching this sermon, and I'm, 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 I'm a little perplexed sometimes preaching a sermon where I'm praising the virtues of what I see happening in people. But I honestly have to do that. It is very gratifying as a pastor uh, to see people embrace the things that the Bible says defines them. And I just want to add a little bit of fuel to that because it has a lot to do with hospitality. Whether or not you're accepting some people but not others. Did you know that the Bible says be careful who you entertain because some of those people may actually be the angels of God. Do you know that? It's in scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll just put it up there. And, um, and show it if we can. It says right there in the Bible. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I've often wondered over the time that I've been in this church. If God's ever taken a human being. Or taken an angel rather. And clothed them in humanity. And placed them in this church. Just to kind of test this. To see how we would respond. If we knew they were angels. Would we respond any differently than if we knew they were just an average human being, you know, like myself? Would we say, oh, those are angels. We really got to pull out all the stops, <laughs> all of the best, whatever it is we have to offer hospitality-wise. We're going to make sure that they, they, get, they get a good gift bag and it has good coffee in it. <laughs> whatever we can do, because they're angels. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying shouldn't make any difference. Shouldn't make any difference. Whether it is angels. Or whether it is Abraham. Or it is the last person that he mentions. Rahab. Rahab. What, what was Rahab? Does anybody know? Prostitute. Okay. In the pecking order of. How people look at other. Other, other, other parts of humanity. They would say that that would be near the bottom. But interestingly enough, God says, here's the span from the most noble Abraham to the most culturally discounted Rahab. All of those people matter. And as the story of Rahab is told in, in, in Joshua chapter 2, we find that even though she had a, 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 a function within society that, that we don't elevate as, 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 as really upstanding. She had something going on in her heart that said, I've heard of your God. When the spies came to Jericho and they began to have a conversation with her, she's like, 
I want what they have because those people are different. They have a reputation actually for being different because the God that they follow, the God that they set up in their own minds and in their own stories and in their own way of life, that God is different. And she was saying, I have a way of life now and I'm not happy about this way of life. I don't like this way of life, but it is the way of life that my culture said I have to do. When she engaged those spies in conversation, she began to wake up to the realities and the possibilities of God. And she basically said, I'm with you and I know my whole family will be with you. And they said, when we come and we will, put a scarlet thread out your window and we'll make sure that everyone in that room is spared, but everyone else will be, um, will, will be destroyed. And why is that story important for us? Because we know that the hospitality of God's people to this person that would be socially discounted made a difference. It made so much of a difference. Did you know that when you open up the book of Matthew and you begin to read the genealogy of all the people that were the people responsible for bringing Jesus as a human being into the world, when they go through that genealogy, you know whose name shows up there? Rahab. Isn't that awesome? That the Son of God can say, one of my ancestors was a prostitute. But then, but then, because the people of God embodied the culture of God, she saw what she needed to see and became a child of God. And I, my biggest hope is that when people see you, they see the characteristics of God in your life. My hope is that when people see us, even though none of us are perfect, they recognize there's a different spirit about us, like this, like, like this, this gentleman that I met up in New York. Because I told Miami, I said, isn't that cool? I've seen that happen so many times. People go from being angry and frustrated at life. They go from being sort of sarcastic and in it for me to all of a sudden having just a very gentle, peaceful spirit. I said, how do you account for that? If there's one thing in my mind that, that says there is a God, it's when, when people are brought out of uh, the, the negativity of the way of life that we inherit in this world and into a way of life where the joy of Christ prevails. And the good news is that is a gift that God brought into this world to distribute to everyone. And so how would you feel if you went into a church and on the one hand they're taking the attractive person and they're just elevating them as much as they can. On the other hand, you realize I'm not, I don't have the looks or the resources or whatever it is that they have and you're just sort of pushed aside. Would you say honestly, I want their God. The God that they worship, that's the one I want so I can be like that. Or would you say, I think I'll give that one a pass. That's not quite what I'm looking for. So the challenge that James gives us is we have to be those people where when anyone and everyone that comes into this place, if they're an angel that God's directed, 
Or there is another human being that God has directed. Because I think everyone that is here is prompted in some way through God's direction to be here. Are we the, the culture of people that God wants us to be to open up and say, this place is for you. I'm seeing a lot of indications that a lot of people honestly feel that way. But I also know my own selfishness. I know my own fears. I know my own misgivings. I know my own stranger danger alert thing. But I know something even better. That every person that God puts in our path, God made. He created. And every person that God puts in our path, God wants to redeem. And maybe we're the only people because we're somewhere along their path, unlike anyone else, we're the only people that can say, our God is for you. And then we can just tell the story about a bloodstained cross and about an empty tomb and about a Savior who's risen to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Lord over angels and demons, presidents and leaders, everyone in the whole social pecking order. Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus invites us into his family, he just simply calls us brother or sister. Because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And I wonder, are you part of something special like that? Because that's what we're here to invite you into. But I also wonder for those of you who've become part of that family, whether you're truly being who you're called to be. And I would say that if you're not, ask God for wisdom. If he's convicting you about your own sense of hospitality, of your own sense of caring, that maybe he could help you to elevate that. Do you remember last week I asked you to write down three things that you had a challenge with and for, us, for God to give you wisdom? Maybe you did and you're like, yeah, I'm sorry I did now. But maybe that's God's way of saying, we're working through it. We're working through it. Be patient because sometimes the, the hard has to come out before the good comes out. God will, will never say, if we request wisdom, I'm not going to give that to you right now. He will just say, watch, and it'll show up. And maybe the wise thing right now for you to do is to follow his prompting and to take everything that you've built into your life right now, which is your culture, and say, I now want Jesus to be at the center of the culture of my life. And trust me, he is a shepherd and not a thief. If he takes something out of your life, he will replace it with something better. And that's a promise. Maybe you need hope. Maybe you need joy. Maybe you need to overcome. Whatever it is, he's here to provide. Well, I'd like to just end this message with that challenge as we go through part two of this series. And hopefully God's speaking to you through it. And maybe God is also putting some things to mind regarding how it is that you can be that person that other people around you 
need you to be for them. Wouldn't it be great if that person that maybe you're thinking about right now could be like my daughter Mayim's manager, going from one really dark state of mind to another one that's filled with his joy. That's what God has for us.